Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. I'm very excited. We have Dr. Keith Woodhouse, who is an assistant professor at Northwestern University, where he teaches in the history department and the environmental policy and culture program. He has a brand new book out that I am very excited to recommend. It's called The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism. And I'm really looking forward to having him share with us all of his research that he's done um, to kind of trace the environmental movement and some of the changes it went through in the latter part of the 20th century. And maybe we'll get to the end and talk about how that has shaped the modern environmental movement. But in any case, I'm very excited to dig into this history of ecocentrism and happy to welcome Dr. Woodhouse to the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on, and congratulations on your new book. I'd love to begin by asking you to define the word ecocentrist. What makes a person or an organization an ecocentrist? Yeah, so it's, that's a good starting question because um, uh, one of the things that uh, my publisher and I were somewhat worried about titling the book The Ecocentrist is that people would misread that and think of it as uh, a centrism. You know, when Americans think of centrism, we think of somebody who's a moderate or in the middle um, rather than somebody who's sort of eco to the core, which is really what the word is more suggesting. So the term uh, ecocentrism, sometimes it's also called biocentrism, and um, it's more familiarly known as a philosophy called deep ecology or a movement, a philosophical movement called deep ecology. And the, it's a pretty simple basic claim. The basic claim is that uh, human beings and human society are no more morally valuable than the non-human world. So ecocentrists put the human world and the non-human world or human beings and uh, non-human nature on an equal moral plane. And that's a pretty radical point of view, I, I would guess that, that the overwhelming majority of people in the world uh, would argue that human beings are of greater moral value than non-human nature, and then when it comes to particular policy decisions, we should emphasize human life, human well-being, and even human comfort uh, above all things, and ecocentrists are people who question that assumption. Mm-hmm. Now, why why do you think you know it's so important to study ecocentrists? What can we gain by better understanding how their history and their philosophy differ from mainstream environmental groups? So that's a tricky question because I'm I'm in the book I'm trying to make um, an a double argument that in some ways seems like it's. Uh, contradictory, but but I don't see it that way. And so, on the one hand, I think that it's always important to study radical movements. Radicals are often the people who uh, can get left out of of history as we're taught it, as we uh, learn it from popular culture, um, and even from just sort of popular memory, um, because radicals tend to be almost by definition 
um, in some ways, the losers of history, right? Because their ideas are not the ones that were broadly and widely embraced and really sort of animated uh, policy and, and how society operates and, and understands the world. But radical thought is often that thought that makes us question our own assumptions um, and question the limits of our own thought, question the sort of bounds that we put on our own political imagination. So in and of them, themselves, just for that reason alone, I think that radical thought of all kinds is really important to, to think about, to take into consideration, to include as part of the conversation, um, if only to just have a broader uh, perspective on all of the the, the the universe of ideas that, that are possible. Uh, at the same time, one of the main arguments that the book makes in terms of ecocentrism and radicalism is that ecocentric thought is defined a certain stripe of radical environmentalist and yet was also intrinsic to mainstream environmentalism. So radicals were the ones who really embraced ecocentric thought, championed it, trumpeted it. They ran with it and they, they uh, very explicitly acted according to an ecocentric belief. Mainstream organizations tended to be much more skeptical of ecocentric thought and in some ways actually said this is really the wrong way uh, to think in, in certain particular um, instances of the way that ecocentric radicals uh, behaved and the, the actions that they took. But I think environmentalism fundamentally uh, is about questioning human superiority or supremacy and 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 one of the basic uh, claims that environmentalism makes is that it's important for human beings to have a certain degree of humility uh, and understand that they are part of a much broader world um, and that that's a world that they don't really fully grasp and they can never fully comprehend the 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 planet beyond um, our own constructed world is uh, profoundly complicated in a way that some people would claim we're actually incapable of completely understanding. It's a level of complexity that uh, our brains can't even completely um, uh, wrap themselves around. So in that sense, I think environmentalism makes a fundamental claim that human beings should be humble and should never assume that they know everything fully understand the world, etc. Now, that's not quite the same as saying that human beings and non-human nature are on equal moral planes, um, but oftentimes environmentalism is interested in limiting human action and limiting human assumptions and limiting what one uh, well-known conservationist from the 1980s called the arrogance of humanism. Mm -hmm. um, and to the degree that that is a is a core part of environmentalism, I think that there is a um, at least a sort of a, a strain of ecocentric thought that runs through what we would think of as the mainstream environmental movement as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think you know in my in my work life, I'm very much inside the green echo chamber, but in my personal life. Um, I move outside of that, pretty far outside of that sometimes with some of the people that I'm with. And what is often lost amongst people outside of the green industry, and it covers a lot of ground there, but um, is that the nuance between the different shades of green, and that's a, that's a 
you know, nuanced way of putting it, but that the environmental movement is not made up of um, people with sort of a unimind. And so that's what I appreciated so much about your book is that it really does illustrate the origins of and the underlying philosophies of the various shades of green, if you will, of different types of people and groups who are pushing for environmental protection. And I think in order to fully understand the ecocentrists, it helps to also understand, and you did this in the book, to understand what they, in a way, I mean, maybe this is just my own editorializing, rebelled against when they emerged in the latter part of the 20th century. And so I'd kind of like for you to talk to us about the evolution of the Sierra Club, um, because they were kind of at the forefront of a lot of what we think of as the modern modern environmental movement. And they started as an amateur group of people that were concerned with preserving a specific region of California, and they morphed into a national organization that was run by paid staff. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how that pivot helped to shape the conservation movement. Yeah, so I think you're exactly right that the Sierra Club... Initially, of course, it was founded in, in the late 19th century by John Muir and several others as a group that was fundamentally interested in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. Uh, there were major political battles early on, most most famously the battle over Hetch Hetchy uh, Valley, which became Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which is the source of uh, drinking water for the city of San Francisco. But for the most part, the Sierra Club was um, a group that was uh, interested in promoting the importance of the Sierra Nevada, promoting camping trips to the Sierra Nevada, um, and it was a regional organization. The, the change really came in the mid-century, um, and some of the key moments of transition were, first, the hiring of David Brower, who was the first paid staff member of the Sierra Club, and he was the very first executive director of the club. Um, and Brower became one of the most famous conservationists and environmentalists in the United States in the decades after, partly because he was because of his pugnaciousness, which was something that the Sierra Club was not necessarily known for. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other thing was that the Sierra Club got involved in a series of fights over national parks in the mid-century, in particular uh, Dinosaur National Monument in Colorado um, and Grand Canyon National. I believe it was a monument back then, later became a national park in northern Arizona. And those those fights were mostly over dams. Um, the proposals by the Bureau of Reclamation to put dams on rivers in those parks in the Sierra Club, that to the Sierra Club was against the entire sort of principle of a national park. You, do, you don't build major infrastructure like dams uh, in national parks. So the Sierra Club sort of went to battle over those issues, um, and it and th- those dam battles really transformed the Sierra Club into a much more politically active group, and from a group that really valued what was sometimes called the amateur tradition, um, which you know tended to mean people who were were um, fairly well-to-do people. They were professionals. They were already operating in circles where they knew political figures who were decision makers, um, and a lot of of conservation work happened with handshakes between people who knew each other behind closed doors and in um, clubs in downtown San Francisco and New York and whatnot uh, to a much more democratic organization. 
Um, and once the Sierra Club started these fights over in dams and national parks, one of the strategies that Brower um, really was at the forefront of was appealing to the public and getting people to write in to uh, their representatives and their senators. And that meant um, becoming a much broad, broader-based organization, becoming a much more sort of populist and democratic organization, um, and a more confrontational organization. And rather than sort of... Um, getting to know the people who headed the Forest Service or the Park Service or various federal agencies and, and having conversations with them and reaching a, a happy compromise that satisfied everyone, uh, the Sierra Club started fighting with those those agencies. Uh, and that was one of the legacies of those dam battles and of Brower as executive director. Mm-hmm. That was a big shift. Um, and and I, I love the way that your book outlines, you know, the the gradual movement in that direction. Um, It's just, it's really fascinating to read. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Dr. Woodhouse. We'll be talking more about his brand new book, The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, 
Let Me Catch You Up. Our guest today is Dr. Keith Woodhouse, and he has a brand new book out called The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism. You know, Dr. Woodhouse, I think a lot of people currently view the environmental movement as a mostly liberal agenda. But your book points out that at the genesis of the modern liberalism with the new left and students for a democratic society, the focus of liberalism was individual freedom and empowerment of all people. And that view was at odds with the view that human action must be restrained. um, And that was being espoused by a lot of leaders environmental groups of that time frame. And you actually, you write in your book, uh, quote, the ecology movement's holism diverted attention from exactly the sorts of differences that most concerned the new left. Will you please talk to us about the rift between the environmental movement and the new left? Yeah, it's, it's easy to look back on that 1960s era, really late 1960s, early 1970s, and think about all of the political movements that we associate with that time and with student activism, campus unrest, and think of them as all of a piece, from civil rights and black power to uh, feminism to environmentalism to the anti-war movement, um, and that these were all sort of uh, part of a, a, a much larger movement that that we tend to call the new left. But if you look more closely, there were all sorts of differences between these movements, and in particular between environmentalism and other uh, new left-associated movements. And the, the groups that we think of as at the core of the new left really didn't uh, respond to environmentalism when it first emerged in the late 1960s. Probably the sort of famous example of this is during Earth Day, which the very first Earth Day was April 22nd, 1970, and this was, of course, famously a huge uh, demonstration or celebration, depending on how you look at it. Um, we think probably around 20 million people across the country participated. One of the posters that you'd often see at Earth Day rallies was um, a, a cartoon with the character Pogo, um, which is a, from a Walt Kelly comic strip called Pogo. And it shows Pogo standing in front of a forest with litter all over the floor. Uh, and the words um, above him are, we have met the enemy and he is us, as Pogo looks at this trash-strewn forest floor. And there are two things about that message that uh, that, that really bothered a lot of uh, activists in the late 1960s and 1970s, and they asso- in which they associated with the environmental movement. One was what I think of as, as whole, what I call holism, and I'm borrowing that term from, from another historian named William Cronin, but that term holism, which is basically saying all people all human beings are at fault, right? Which is a claim that environmentalists can sometimes very easily make. The problem is human beings. The problem is humanity. We have met the enemy and he is us. And us there presumably refers to all people. This was at at the very moment when the new left was interested in, in social difference and the ways in which uh, social differences, in particular race and gender, but, but also class, uh, structured society and produced inequality. Um, so that tendency of environmentalism to look at human beings as a species as the problem was in many ways against the grain of 
the arguments that the new left was making about social inequality and the ways in which some people were far more culpable for various problems on the planet um, than other people were. And some people were perpetrators and some people were, were victims. Um, and then the other, the, the second way in which the new left tended to criticize environmentalism was that the new left was fundamentally interested in maximizing human freedom and individual freedom, right? And, and, and it, that was sort of a core belief that maximizing freedom for all people uh, was an inherent good. Whereas environmentalists, to some degree, were interested in limiting human freedom. Now, they would never describe it that way. Um, but, of course, environmentalism uh, in many ways is interested in limiting human behavior, uh, those behaviors that are considered the most destructive. Um, now, ideally, you do that through education, right, and persuasion, and you get people to sort of realize that certain actions are harmful to the natural world, harmful to other people, cause pollution, etc. Um, but the fundamental goal there is we want people not to do these things. Um, so in those two ways, uh, the new left was initially pretty suspicious of some of the animating messages behind the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. And your book describes the 1970s as a time when a lot of major environmental groups like the Sierra Club began to establish a strong presence in Washington, D.C. and use a legislative or litigative approach to protecting natural resources. And because at that time, the federal government was largely run by a a liberal Democratic base, there were some alliances that were formed there. And I'd like for you to talk to our listeners about the significance of the environmental movement beginning to gain success as essentially lobbyists. Yeah. So, you know, in the initial sort of uh, excitement of Earth Day and that moment when environmentalism burst onto the scene, there were all sorts of possible strategies that the movement could take to try to advance its interests and its agenda. Um, but the one that most environmental organizations really ended up gravitating toward was um, litigation and lobbying uh, in Washington, D.C. So it was really a sort of a legislative approach uh, based on lobbying and based on often opening headquarters in Washington, D.C., learning the ins and outs of lobbying and exerting as much political pressure as possible and using the federal government as the major lever of power in order to um, protect natural resources and uh, uh, and the natural world. So there are probably sort of at least three key um, developments here, and I'll, I'll run through them very quickly. Uh, one was that the Sierra Club lost in those dam battles that I mentioned earlier, especially the, the battles over dams and the proposals for putting dams in the Grand Canyon. The Sierra Club actually ended up losing its tax-exempt status. It had been a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, and the IRS revoked its tax-exempt status saying, look, you're engaging in political lobbying, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, on this issue, so you're no longer eligible for tax exemption. 
that was initially seen as a blow to the Sierra Club, but what it did was it actually freed the Sierra Club to do much more political work because it no longer had to worry about overstepping some sort of uh, line and, and, and becoming too politically active and, and risking its tax-exempt status because at that point it had lost it, 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 it had lost it already. Uh, the second was all of these uh, Nixon-era environmental laws. There were many. Some of the most famous are uh, Revised Clean Air Act or Revised Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, of course. All of these things which really now form uh, the backbone of the environmental movement in the United States. Um, this all came in sort of a flurry between... 1969 and 1974 or five or so, sort of bleeding into the Ford administration. Um, so the entire uh, legislative um, scaffolding of the environmental movement was created during this time. This was both a, a, a result of all of these environmental groups moving to Washington, D.C., and also it encouraged them um, to exert their influence there more than anywhere else. And then finally uh, was the rise of environmental law, um, and there were more and more organizations that were that were uh, essentially lawyers who were interested in environmental issues. Um, and some of the most best known groups are the Environmental Defense Fund, the uh, Natural Resources Defense Fund, the Sierra Club Legislative or the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, which later became a group called Earth Justice. Uh, these groups all emerged around this time, um, and and they worked sort of in conjunction with these laws and with lobbying. So the lobbyists would push for stronger litig uh, legislation, and then the legislation would afford the opportunity for environmental groups to file suit when they felt that the laws were not being uh, were not being followed. So all these things sort of worked in tandem. Mm -hmm. um, and none of this really is free. Center the environmental movement in DC. Right, and none of this is free. I What's mean, that? we're not we're not talking about a volunteer service anymore. This is, you know, these are jobs. These are offices. How did environmental groups fund this expansion of both staff and scope? And did the need to fund that kind of overhead serve to temper their organizations in any way? Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. And um, the, the more you're employing lobbyists, the more you're employing lawyers, the more you're employing paid staff, the more money you need. Um, and that means, again, appealing to a broader base. Um, and that means that your message has to appeal to as many people as possible. Um, and so that affects your message. That affects the framing of your message. Uh, and that affects who you're reaching out to. Uh, and then the other dimension of this, which I actually don't really talk about a great deal in the book, but I think somebody really needs to write about. And this is one of those topics that I think sounds boring, but I think it <laughs> could actually be fascinating, um, is the rise of direct mail campaigns. And this mm -hmm. is really the era in which a lot of nonprofit groups and public interest organizations are going to these direct mail campaigns, you know, where they just send mass bundles of um, financial appeals out to people. And we all get them in their mail, right? We, I mean, they, we, all, we mm -hmm. call it junk mail um, today, but they're actually extremely effective. I mean, if you send these out, even if you get like a 2 or 3% response rate, you're going to make a lot of money. Um, and, and so the, the rise of direct mail and the way that that affects public interest organizations, I think there's a really exciting story to be told there. Um, I didn't tell it in this book, but uh, somebody out there should, should, should follow up that lead. 
Well, and because there's still so much money being made by those, even in the age of digital communication, I mean, that's still a cottage industry. So, you know, that that would not be the case were it not effective. And in fact, you know, I run a nonprofit organization myself, the Go Green Initiative, and it's a part of our tax returns to disclose if we hire those types of, of businesses that do direct mail or other fundraising campaigns. So, I mean, it's still big business and it's still, I mean, my organization doesn't do it because, um, you know, we don't want to create waste, you know, uh, in the way that we do things, but um, it's still a significant means of funding these types of organizations. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to pivot. We're going to start talking about how the rise of radical environmentalists uh, came about in the in the 80s and 90s in the latter part of the 20th century. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, and I'm so glad that you could all tune in. In case you've just joined us, I'll catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Keith Woodhouse. He has a brand new book out called 
The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism. And we've spent the last couple of segments of the show talking about the rise of the environmental movement and some of the organizations like the Sierra Club that became sort of the mainstream leaders of the environmental movement until (laughs) uh, the radical environmentalists came to be. And so... Keith, I want to I want to start with this. What spawned the radical environmental movement that we saw emerge in the 1980s and 90s? What did people find in an organization like Earth First that they didn't find in the established environmental organizations of the time? Yeah, so in some ways, you know, this is the the flip side of the the last question that we talked about about the sort of rise of the Washington D.C. centered lobbying and litigation based environmental movement. Um, there are, there are virtues and vices to that approach, and one of the problems is that once you're sort of ensconced in that world of power politics um, and in building relationships with representatives, and and uh, um, you know you have paid lobbyists and whatnot. Um, you're in a world of compromise-based politics, um, where that's that's sort of really the coin of the realm. You know, is making compromise and realizing that you start from position X, and then in the end you're at X minus Y. Right? You've got to give in order to get. So by the late 1970s, there's a lot of um, conservationists and environmentalists who are really frustrated with the way in which they feel like groups like the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society and the National Audubon Society are more and more compromise-prone. And they're more and more uh, groups that are interested in what some people call the politics of gradualism or incrementalism, right? One tiny step at a time. Um, and, and the more that activists felt like... Uh, what they thought of as the environmental crisis was a genuine crisis. I mean, this really was unfolding right now, right? And all of these things were forests were being destroyed and, and habitat was, was being lost and, um, uh, uh, meadows were being paved over. All of these things were happening right now. We don't have time to wait for these large organizations to sort of figure out the details of this or that um, particular agreement in Washington, D.C. The the thing that really sort of pushed a lot of, of uh, staffers, um, grassroots staffers across the edge, and I'll, I won't get into the particulars of this because this is sort of the wonky policy stuff that makes a lot of people's <laughs> eyes glaze over, um, but was uh, something called RARE2, which stands for Roadless Area Review and Evaluation. And that was a massive wilderness inventory by the Forest Service. The Forest Service basically had to look at all of its land across the United States and figure out what should be preserved as wilderness and what shouldn't. And and long story short, the results of that process were deeply disappointing for a lot of environmentalists. And some of them said, you know, I've had enough. We we can't do this anymore. We're, We're losing more than we're protecting. And uh, a few of those people uh, went off and they started a new group, uh, and the group was called Earth First, um, or I should say Earth First, because it has an exclamation, mandatory exclamation mark at the end of, uh, at the end of their name. Um, and the idea behind Earth First basically was um, we're not going to compromise. In fact, the, the slogan of the group was no compromise in defense of Mother Earth. Uh, so we're not going to compromise we're going to start from position X and we're going to keep to position X the entire time until we get it. Um, and we're not going to rely on um, politicians and policymakers in Washington, D.C. We're going to rely primarily on direct action. 
putting our own bodies on the line. Um, and so that was the radical response to what some of these people saw as the failings uh, of a D.C.-centered approach. Give us some examples of the direct action that Earth First or Earth First <laughs> members uh, undertook <laughs> in the latter part of the 20th century. What were some of those direct action episodes? Yeah, so direct action, you know, it really started pretty simply and almost spontaneously as essentially just blockades. So you'd have um, logging occurring in an area that um, activists considered to be either a potential wilderness or on the verge of becoming wilderness or someplace that should be protected, uh, and yet it was being logged. So, you know, the first direct direct examples of direct action were essentially just standing in front of a, a logging truck, four or five eight, nine people um, holding hands and standing across the logging road and saying, look, the only way that you are going to get these uh, trucks past us is to drive through us. Um, that became, over time, over years, more and more sort of sophisticated, um, and, and blockades became more and more complicated. So, you know, they eventually evolved into something called um, what I think was eventually termed the Sleeping Dragon. And the Sleeping Dragon was essentially where activists would um, sit across the road, their hands linked together, but their hands were encased in uh, plastic tubes. And within those tubes, they were holding hands and their hands, their arms were handcuffed together. And then those tubes were run through uh, conc- or, or uh, steel barrels. The barrels were filled with concrete and then the, con- the concrete barrels were, were buried halfway into the ground. The idea here was basically that in order to remove that blockade, you had to saw through the barrel, bust up the concrete, and then you had to saw through the plastic tubing without cutting off someone's arm. And then you had to undo um, the handcuffs. So, and even beyond that, by the 1990s, you have earth firsters who are actually uh, literally constructing essentially um, uh, walls uh, with, sometimes with with uh, drawbridges and uh, um, uh, trenches d- dug in front of them in order to prevent logging trucks, bulldozers, etc., from advancing along roads. The other um, sort of probably most famous direct action strategy that Earth Firsters used, uh, which was sort of their calling card in the same way as, you know, Greenpeace's calling card was uh, running in their little Zodiacs as inflatable rafts mm-hmm. and positioning themselves in between whales and whaling ships. For mm-hmm. Earth, Earth First, a version of that was something called the tree fit. And that was essentially to build platforms suspended dozens or even hundreds of feet off the ground in trees um, where activists would spend hours, days, weeks, sometimes even months, and they'd live in these trees. Um, And the idea essentially was the only way that you're going to be able to cut down this stand of trees um, is to threaten the lives of of these activists sitting in the trees um, uh, with all of the legal liabilities and ramifications, not to mention moral uh, ramifications that come with that. So, you know, this was yet another way of just sort of putting one's body in between um, the thing that's being protected and the thing that is that is threatening it. And and at this point, you know, I know that there were also some acts of, you know, sabotage and things like that. How did the, those types of direct action um, campaigns sometimes wrinkle the social justice uh, community? Um, why did some social yep. justice advocates criticize the philosophy of the radical ecocentrists? 
So probably in, in, in two main ways. You know, one was, again, this sort of holism, and the rhetoric of Earth First was often human beings are a cancer on the Earth, human beings are dis, uh, a destructive, we've got to protect nature from uh, the human species, and that language really bothered a lot of activists who uh, were were interested in in issues of social justice because again they said look you know that's just far too simplistic an analysis i mean uh painting all human beings with the same brush is ignoring the ways in which obviously there's a profound difference between somebody who is the um you know ceo of a logging company uh and somebody who um, is living in poverty, right? They have profoundly different relationships to um, material resources, uh, to the destruction of natural resources, to the use of natural resources, etc. Uh, so they thought of Earth First's analysis of environmental destruction as simple and and really sort of an impoverished view of of what the problem was. And then the second was that the most infamous um, strat- direct action strategy that Earth First eventually started using was tree spiking. Mm-hmm. So direct action can fall in two sort of major categories. One is civil disobedience, and this is really when you're out there um, in front of the world, right, blockading something mm-hmm. or... Um, uh, uh, desegregating a, um, a lunch counter in North Carolina or uh, sitting in a tree or what have you, but it's very clear who's doing it. You're out there. The other one is what's called, uh, what environmentalists called ecotage, and this is done under the cover of darkness. Usually it's anonymous, um, and the idea is essentially to sabotage the logging trucks or or the, uh, um, uh, you know, the the equipment that's being used to build a parking lot or uh, a ski lift or what have you. Um, and the the most notorious example of this was called tree spiking. And tree spiking essentially is pounding uh, a large nail into a tree um, or really actually pounding hundreds, if not thousands of nails into trees. Now, the, the pounding of one nail does not threaten the life of the tree itself. But the idea here is that by pounding hundreds of nails into a tree stand, you inoculate that stand of trees against logging because to log that stand is to cut those trees down and then send the trees to the lumber mill. And when the trees go through uh, mill equipment, these large band saws at the mill, once those saws hit the spikes, the nails that are embedded in those trees, um, they'll be seriously damaged, which is very costly. Um, so the idea was, you know, you, you spike a stand of trees and then you send a letter to the Forest Service and to the logging company and you say, this tree stand has been spiked, therefore you cannot, you now cannot log it without removing all of those spikes. The, the risks there, of course, were that um, either A, at the mill, when a bandsaw hit uh, a spike, it could splinter and, and, and actually explode, and that, that puts mill workers uh, in jeopardy. Or B, when the sawyers themselves are actually using chainsaws to cut down those trees, if a chainsaw hits a spike, um, the, cha- the chain is going to snap, right? It's going to come apart, and that, that puts the life of the, uh, uh, the logger at risk. Now, I should say that that never actually happened. There was only one uh, incident in which uh, a mill worker, in fact, was struck by um, 
equipment after a, a, a spike went through um, uh, the mill. And all th- there's a sig- fairly significant amount of evidence that that was not an Earth-first action and that that was somebody who was, that was sort of a copycat. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the risk was still there, right? And for yeah. a lot of activists, they said, look, this is just a bridge too far. We don't want to risk human well-being and even human life in order to protect these tree stands. Right. And you're not really hurting the people who are in the position of power and profit by doing that. What you're hurting is, you know, a minimum wage or low wage worker just trying to put food on their table. So it makes perfect sense. Um, We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, uh, we've got much more with Dr. Woodhouse and his brand new book, The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all be with us. And I want to thank Dr. Keith Woodhouse and Columbia University Press, who published his book, um, The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism. Thank you to both entities, both uh, Keith and uh, the publishing house, for having you know, putting you on our show today. We're happy to have you on Go Green Radio. Um, this is a fascinating book, and I highly recommend it. Um, your book details the rifts in the radical environmental movement. And I'd really like for you to talk to our listeners about what caused Earth First um, to have some infighting. 
Yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Jill, for having me here. It's been a pure pleasure. Um, and I mean, th- this this is a, a hugely complicated question. I have a whole chapter in the book about it. But the short answer is to look at the um, the career of the activist career of Judy Berry. And Judy Berry became a really important figure in Earth First. She was an activist in Northern California. She started. Uh, she became the leader of an Earth First group in Northern California. She called it Ecotopia Earth First. Um, and what's crucial about Judy Berry is that she wanted to embrace both the idea of ecocentrism, which she was really attracted to, and social justice. And she wanted to balance those things. There's been a lot of people who have tried to strike that balance. It's really tricky balance to strike. I talk a lot in the book about a thinker named Murray Bookchin, who did so, who tried to do so earlier. But Judy Berry is one of the most important figures um, in this vein, and she. Um, disavowed tree spiking. She said, we're not going to do that because as you, just as you mentioned earlier, her, her view was that it targets, uh, loggers rather than the logging companies, um, you know, rather than the, the, the CEOs who are in charge. Um, and she wanted Earth First to look at uh, issues of gender, issues of race, issues of class, issues of inequality, and the ways in which those intersected with environmentalism. And for some old-school Earth Firsters, um, that was too much. And, and so the, the group sort of fractured and then remade itself at that moment. So the the issues, the, the sort of tension between ecocentrism and social justice uh, continued, and, and people continue to try to uh, to overcome it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's often said that those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. And right now, we have a groundswell of young environmentalists these days who really don't know very much about the history of the environmental movement that they're joining. In your mind, Dr. Woodhouse, what are the top two or three lessons that we should learn from the history of environmentalism in America that we should not repeat? Well, it's you know it's always scary to try to uh, impart lessons to younger people because they probably have uh, just as much to teach us as we have to teach them. But I, I would say I would point to maybe two things. The first is that we really always have to try to think uh, across scales, um, and and what I mean by that is to think about uh, climate change, for instance, is a planet-wide phenomenon. And it's a problem that affects very particular communities and people in very particular ways. Uh, that makes it a real challenge politically and, and very different than, say, uh, the whole neozone in the 1980s, right, which was something that was really sort of a, a global problem that didn't really affect people in particularistic ways. Um, but most environmental problems are both planetary and local at the same time, and even individual. So you have to think in terms of individual human bodies, human communities, regions and places, and the planet, um, the planetary systems. The other one is is that, uh, you know, our democratic institutions, our liberal democratic institutions in the United States are, are incredibly valuable, and, and we depend on them, and, and we rely on them. But they don't work on their own. Um, there's very few examples in American history of significant legislative achievements and, and political advance that did not begin with some form of grassroots activism. So representative democracy only goes so far, right? Our, our representatives in Washington, D.C. Uh, are tools. Um, they're tools that we should use, um, but they're not um, people who we should rely on to figure things out on their own. 
Um, so the American political process, it, it, it relies on various sort of national institutions that are based in our nation's capital, but fundamentally change always starts with, with grassroots activism. Mm-hmm. Many of our listeners are college students, and you're a college professor yourself. I'd love for you to take a minute to imagine that you're speaking to an online lecture hall of many tens of thousands of young people who are eager to make our world a greener, cleaner place. In the final moments that we have left in the show, what are the parting thoughts that you would like to leave with them? Yeah, this is a question I wrestle with every year because I teach a course called American Environmental History. And, you know, it's essentially 10 weeks of sort of depressing stories about uh, the <laughs> slow descent of, of, of the, the planet into greater and greater environmental peril. And I always try to end on some sort of an up note. Uh, and it's really hard to do. Um, and what I've started doing is is um, just going to a quote from Wallace Stegner, who's a great writer and environmentalist and environmental thinker, and can you know say these things far better than I can. So I actually have it here on my wall. Uh, Wallace Stegner wrote, and this was in, a, in for a book that David Brower published for the Sierra Club. And he wrote, we are the most dangerous species of life on the planet, and every other species, even the earth itself, has cause to fear our power to exterminate. But we are also the only species which, when it chooses to do so, will go to great effort to save what it might destroy. And I think that emphasis on both the threat of human beings, but the ability of human beings to make choices, make informed, educated choices based on what they value, what they cherish, um, and to choose to, to, to value things and to protect them. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that uh, Stegner quote. So that's what I try to leave students with at the end of what is sometimes a dispiriting uh, academic term. Well, and I think, you know, I work with a lot of high school students in the work that I do with the Go Green Initiative, and they're impatient, and I don't want them to lose that impatience, but I try to help them understand that um, we should remain feisty and restless in our, you know, in our pursuit of, of change that will protect the environment, but um, steal yourselves, ready yourselves to be that way for a lifetime, Um the people Absolutely. who came before Absolutely. you, <laughs> the people who came before you were also restless and they were feisty and they were, you know, they, they wanted to see change happen and they didn't fail um, because they lost that. They, they have come before you in such a way that um, it, it, you should understand that it will take a lifetime of fighting, of having your dukes up <laughs> to to make this uh, these changes, I think. So, yeah, I really, many lifetimes, in fact, and we're all just yes. a part of that. We are a part of that. We're on the spectrum. Thank you so much, Dr. Woodhouse, for joining us. Go out and get his book, folks, The Ecocentrist, A History of Radical Environmentalism. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.